1: Greetings. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I'm here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer.
2: I love this voice you're doing. Just doing it doing do it up the whole season. Wow. Evan's, Evan's dripping that extra hundred. Yeah, Evan, uh, have you been professionally trained?
1: <laughs> I've been taking voice <laughs> lessons for uh, the last three weeks.
2: Who, uh, who did you talk to this week?
1: This week I talked to Mark Adams. Uh, Mark Adams, I knew him originally from, he had this book called Turn Right at Machu Picchu, which is a kind of travelogue that's very, very funny from a few years ago. And he has a more recent book. Uh, That one's about Peru, obviously. This one's about uh, Alaska called Tip of the Iceberg. It's on paperback just now. And uh, Mark's been around magazines for many, many years, edited many of the people on this podcast, written for a bunch of magazines. And now he writes these great books. What's his voice like? (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) It's lovely. I will say, uh, if you're the kind of person who doesn't like a little like old heyday of magazine 90s early 2000s magazine talk just heads up because uh, I believe there is, there is some in this interview <laughs> if
2: you're not here for that town car era magazine talk <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you've got a nostalgia for periods of the past start a newsletter about it I'm getting so many newsletters now that I'm thinking about like starting a separate newsletter email account because it's like more than half my email I'm just very loose with the uh, the newsletter signups uh If you want to catch people like me who are saturated in every format except the newsletter, do it with MailChimp. They make it easy. They've got
1: all the analytics and the tools to help you grow that audience, whatever your niche.
2: Thank you, MailChimp. Here's Evan with Mark Adams.
1: Mark Adams, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I have read your books recently, and I wanted to start off talking about your most recent book. Tip of the Iceberg is the most recent book, and you go to Alaska. There's also a parallel narrative of historical journey to Alaska.
2: Maybe give your capsule of what the book is so people who haven't read it will be a little more familiar. Yeah, it's sort of two stories intertwined. It's the retracing of the 1899 Harriman expedition to Alaska, which was uh, came about when Edward Harriman, the famous railroad tycoon, uh, in 1898, he spent the whole summer looking at every inch of track of the Union Pacific Railroad that he'd just taken over, did a complete overhaul, and was absolutely exhausted by the beginning of 1899. And his doctor said, look, you need to take the summer off. So Harriman being Harriman, uh, micromanager, said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I know people have started taking cruises up through the inside passage of Alaska, um, and rather than just go up there on a steamship, I'm gonna refit one of my own boats as a luxury yacht, a two hundred and fifty foot long luxury yacht, and then I'm going to invite two dozen of America's top naturalists, scientists, writers, artists, and bring them along with me, basically, to do a little bit of research and to help entertain my family and my guests. So in two months he puts together this all-star team that includes John Muir, <laughs> George Bird Grinnell, the founder of uh, Forest and Stream magazine, which was the big natural and sciences and hunting magazine in the late 19th century. He's got Hart Merriam, who founded what is now the U.S. Biological Survey. Uh, he's got John Burroughs, who is probably the best-known nature writer in America friends with teddy roosevelt and a bunch of other guys and they go off to the inside passage and then they keep following the coast the southern coast past where anchorage is now out to the aleutian islands over to siberia and then back to Nome, and they thought it would be sort of a lark and that it was cool because it was you know terra incognita and they would find you know you could basically step off the boat and make scientific discoveries at that point you mm-hmm. know and there are mentions of that in the records it's like you know I, you know i went on shore for 15 minutes and found 12 new breeds of mollusks <laughs> or something but they also found that there were all sorts of environmental problems going on in alaska it was not this pristine, unknown land that most of us thought it was back here in the lower 48. And they set to work to try to fix those problems. What I decided to do was to retrace that journey using mostly... What are known as the alaska marine ferries which is like the amtrak or the greyhound Mm -hmm. of alaska because there are so few roads in alaska still so to get around you get on these marine ferries and you go from town to town to town and what i do is i retrace the route i stopped in all the places they had stopped in in 1899 talked to some of the people talked to some experts and sort of you know took the temperature of what was happening in i did the reporting in 2016 because at that time the obvious environmental crisis was not what had happened in 1899, which was overfishing salmon and gold mining and things like that. Mm. It was climate change, you know, and Alaska prides itself on being a very Republican, very red state. But it is also ground zero for climate change because things are changing so quickly there. So you took this um, Greyhound of the
1: Ferry yeah. system, uh, which was fa- that just that in and of itself was fascinating. It made me want oh, to yeah. do that. But it also highlights the thing I was going to ask you about, which is you could have taken a tourist boat. There are all sorts of tourist cruises that go up the coast and probably stop in some of the, if not all those places, the big cruise ships. And you have this passage towards the beginning that sort of describes, like, the difference between going on a vacation and going on an expedition. And I'm curious, how deliberate was it that you set down to find something that historical that you could then match and do it in this certain way? Like, how far
2: out do you start in terms of conceiving the idea? Well, first of all, you want to have a place that people are going to be interested in because you want people to read the book. You know, my first book, when it came out, it got, like, amazing reviews in big publications. And to this day, it sold, like, 2,800 copies. This is the book about the um, the strength guy. The strength guy, Mr. America. Yeah, Mr. Was America. Called. Yeah, so having lived through that nightmare, every book since I've thought, first and foremost, this has got to be a topic that a lot of people are going to be interested in because a lot of people who write books are like, you know, and I'm sure you hear this all the time. It's like, you know what you should write a book about? You know, the other day, some guy's like, there's a district court judge up in White Plains. <laughs> I'm like, who, who is going to buy that book? Uh, Mark, you know, don't give away your ideas. Well, district that's true. I guess Plains. you're right. Yeah, district, maybe a circuit <laughs> court judge. But I actually came across a little item in the Times, and it was- the way they put it was, it was the number one vacation destination in America is the Inside Passage cruise. And I was like, Inside Passage, million people, recent retirees, hardcover book buyers, You know, now I've got a hook, you know, because the book business is is a business. You have to do a business plan, which is the book proposal, and you have to explain why this book is going to sell a lot of copies. Um, So once I had that hook, I was like, well, okay. well, if there is a story here that I can follow the expedition and sort of weave it in and out, then there's something I can work with here. And it was right around the time that Obama had gone up to Alaska Mm -hmm. for the first time and was looking around at all the glaciers and people like, "Ooh, this is melting and stuff. And then pretty much that week, I happened to be in Seattle. I was in Pioneer Square, which if people who've been to Seattle know is... A great place to pick up like, you know, vaping supplies, but not necessarily <laughs> a great place to meet a national park ranger. But there was a totem pole there with a national park ranger sitting beneath it in his smoky bear hat. And he's like, oh, this totem pole is a copy of one that was inspired by the Harriman expedition of 1899. And that's how I found out about the Harriman expedition. And the, when those two came together, I was like, boom. All right, we're rolling now. So
1: prior to that, you would not have done a book where you just went to Alaska.
2: No, not unless there was a backstory of some sort. You know, I think I could do a book like that, and I may do that next. It doesn't have to be, you know, a historic expedition that I traced. Two of my books have been like that. Yeah. But it's just an easy point of entry into the story. And then you had not been to Alaska
1: previously. I'd never been to
2: Alaska before I started reporting the book. And so do you then
1: try to consume, like, all of the travel literature about Alaska and say to yourself okay, what's missing here? Or do you try to ignore all the travel literature about Alaska and say, I don't want that in my
2: head? I devour everything. Mm. I just I devour everything, and I think, you know, what is interesting? You know, a lot of it is familiar. You know, the stuff you see on a cruise ship is going to be familiar. And a lot of it is unfamiliar. You know, the stuff about the environmentalism in 1899 is an almost completely unknown story, even though it involves some of the biggest names in, you know, natural sciences at the end of the 19th century and Teddy Roosevelt. So I'm compiling interesting pieces of information and then putting my own gloss on it. So you set out, this was in 2016. This is summer of 2016. And you went for, it seemed like a long period of time. Thank you. For someone. uh, (laughs) I very very deliberately in these books try to make it sound like I'm out there for months and months and months. Well, Uh, you have to understand
1: also, I'm reading it as someone who has kids and I know you have kids, it's mentioned in the book, who is sort of like, how do you take a reporting trip in, and balance everything. So when I read something like this, I'm always like, wow, it seems like he was out there for a long time. Yeah, all
2: my writer friends ask that too. And <laughs> the fact of the matter is, I'm like a house husband most of the year. My wife makes most of the money. So if anybody, any young people out there thinking that I, you know, you can live in New York City on the salary of a book writer, uh, think again. Marry a veterinarian like I did. So... I you think know, some
1: I, some listeners will appreciate that sort of straightforward <laughs> honesty. We get I'm, a lot of questions about that. i the practical
2: information, Evan. Uh, so... But it took about, I think, nine or 10 weeks total, three chunks of time. I did one week. You know, what I usually do is I do on-the-ground research talking to experts, and I did that in April. I went up for a week or 10 days, went to Anchorage, went to Fairbanks, to the universities where most of the experts tend to be, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of scouted things out, and then I spent the whole month of June doing the first half of the book, and then the whole month of August doing the second half of the book, and I think I flew out of Nome back toward New York City on September 1.
1: And the books are, I mean, I'm thinking of this book, I mean, actually the last three, but, you know, Turn Right at Machu Picchu, which is, it's similar in structure in terms of your narrative, taking a journey, and then following historical expedition as well. I mean, they do rely, they rely heavily on sort of you being a good companion for the reader. Yeah. And I found that to be true uh, and and fun. And like, I I just wanted to like keep going along on the boats. (laughs) Um, But how much... Is there a conflict between being a good companion as a traveler and being a good companion to the
2: reader? Oh, yeah. You know, people ask all the time, they're like, you know, is, when you do these books, is it like going on vacation? Right, right. You know, it's just like, you, know, you go to these great places. you go to Machu Picchu, you've been to Machu Picchu like five times. And the answer is no, absolutely not. And anybody who does reporting will understand this. The second I land in a place like Alaska, it's like the Christopher Isherwood quote, you know, I'm a camera With the lens open or whatever he said, you know, you're on and you're looking for stuff and you're looking for people to talk to and you're looking for scenes for the book and you're freaking out because people haven't called you back or haven't emailed you. So, no, I'm a complete wreck when I'm on these these reporting trips and they're not fun. You know, in the moment, you're kind of like, oh, this is fun. You know, oh, I got chased by a bear. Oh, you know, here I am at Machu Picchu. Um... You know, here I am on the island of Santorini in Greece, which is, you know, like one of the top ten destinations for rich people. But it doesn't last very long, because you're, like, you're just freaking out looking for material for the book, that's the whole reason you're there. And when you get back, the sort of, you know, light, playful tone, that's, like, third or fourth draft stuff. You know, uh, you've got you got to get the structure <laughs> down, and then, you know, later on, it's, you can get that sort of whimsical, you know, Mark is a bit of a buffoon stuff in there. <laughs> well, well, that's part of
1: it, too, like... There's a sort of you said buffoon, so like there's a bumbling quality to yeah. some of it yeah. that feels like not intentional, but it feels like you have to leave open the possibility that things go wrong or like make it possible for things to go wrong. Yeah. Otherwise it would be boring.
2: Yeah, no, you have to leave yourself open to surprises when you're doing this kind of writing, when you're doing, you know, travel-ish writing. And travel writing is a term I'm not 100% comfortable with. Mm, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, because, you know, most people, when they think of travel writing, they think of, like, you know, a blogger doing the 12 best mojitos in Rio or something like that. And that's, you know, whenever people ask me, you know, how can I do your job, basically? I get all these emails all the time. You know, hey, how can I do your job? And what I say is, we can't write about places, you have to write about people. So, you know, I spend probably 80% of my time looking for interesting people I can find along the route. You know, I know it reads somehow like, hey, I ran into so-and-so in this town, but all of that is completely sketched out in advance. And and a lot of it falls through. You know, when you're working on Mm -hmm. these things, things that seem like they are absolutely essential to the book, starting out, it's like, if I don't get on that, Fish and Wildlife Service boat going out to the Pribilof Island, I have no second half of this book. And that's how I felt at one point. It's like, I I don't know how this book is ever going to work if I don't get on that boat. And I spent weeks and weeks and weeks emailing these people. And finally, they wouldn't let me on the boat. And now you read the book and it's like, oh, (laughs) it didn't really matter. Well, it's in the book. That is in the book. It's briefly mentioned, yeah, as something that fell through, you know, but you, you can't script it too tightly. You have to be open to those surprises along the route. And so do you you still get that feeling even after
1: having done several books that I would think it would be possible that now you could go out and be sort of like, I've done this before. Like if something goes wrong, something else will open up or the thing going wrong will become itself a narrative. There's there's always a way out.
2: No, no, it's always sheer and utter panic the whole time, (laughs) you know, the whole time I'm on the road. I never sleep more than like three or four hours a night when I'm on the road. Because I just w- I wake up at four o'clock in the morning and I'm like, right, who am I going to talk to today? I don't have anything scheduled for today. What am I going to do? Yeah, there's got to be something. And sometimes things work out for that day and sometimes they don't. You know, and you end up sitting in a museum or, or having a long lunch or something or reading. But um, I think when you start to lose that feeling and there are travel writers who've done more than one book. And you can tell the point in their career where they start to coast a little bit and they're like, well, I'll just, you know, I'll to a little flashback scene here or, you know, I don't need to take the bus and sit next to somebody interesting. I'll just fly and, you know, tell what I see out the window. I think when you lose that sort of, you know, tense feeling that pit in your stomach, then the work starts to lose something as well.
1: There, I mean, there's a, not to give it away, but I mean, there's a sort of part of tip of the iceberg with a bit of drama where you're trying to go see a particular thing. Yeah. You have a guide who's trying to help you see that particular thing. Oh, yeah. And then there's sort of the question of how safe it is to do that at this particular time. Yeah, yeah. And that I felt like I could really relate to this sort of thing. Totally. But I'm here to get, this is what I'm here to do is
2: see this thing. Exactly. You know, it's 85% I could get killed and 15% this is going to be a whole chapter in three hours. I can't believe this. This is awesome. You know, it's like... (laughs)
1: <laughs> but that guy had,
2: had a little, um, I
1: think it was that guy, had a little like taxonomy of fun.
2: That was Didn't Kyle. You, what was my, my, that? It was like there's uh, type one fun, which is fun that you, know, you have it in the moment and it's fun. And then you go back home and talk about it later and it's still fun. There's type two fun, which is it sucks in the moment. Like, you know, I, it rained for three days on our hunting trip, but we got back later and realized it was the most fun we ever had because we played cards and just talked about life. And then there's type three fun, which is it sucks in the moment and then it sucks later too. <laughs> so which one, which one is uh, traveling for one of these books? It's, there's three. it's all three, you know, it's all, <laughs> there are moments when you're sitting, like I said, you know, where you're talking to someone and be like, oh, this, I can just copy this straight into the book. This is awesome. And then there are moments where you're like, I don't know where this is going, but there's probably something here. And then there are some moments and there are things that don't get into the book. Cause they're just so awful. I mean, in the Machu Picchu book, the only thing that my, my editors at Penguin at, at Dutton Penguin have really cut out in three books I've done for them. is was a whole scene about my digestive troubles <laughs> in Peru. Uh, there, it is in there though. Which, it's, there's a, a little bit much longer. But, oh my God. It went on and on and on. <laughs> and, uh, Brian Tart, the editor in chief, who was my editor at the time, was like, I love everything in the book except that scene. That scene's just got to go. But that's the real stuff. That is the real stuff. <laughs> You know, maybe in the, the special 10th anniversary edition. We'll put that in the <laughs> in the appendix. You could just do a chapbook <laughs> of just that.
1: Oh, my God. Uh, talk about something that there's a big audience
2: for. Amazon single, <laughs> ninety nine.
1: So um, I'm interested in the, this may seem so trivial, but yeah. when you're, so like you're on this boat and mm-hmm. you end up talking to people and you sort of write about how people in Alaska are very open yeah. to, yeah. you know, conversation and you're yeah. all kind of like on this thing together. But I am interested in, how what your approach is like? You're traveling, like you're there for days and days and days. Yeah. So for every person, do you walk up and say, "Hi, I'm Mark. I'm writing a book about this," or do you get deep in a conversation and then pull out your notebook and say, "Actually, I'm I'm also writing a book." Can I? Like, how do those conversations?
2: develop it depends you know if it's someone who knows what they're talking about i absolutely positively you know call in advance explain who i am i've written these books i've been on npr you know blah 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 and then we set a date and time and usually end up in a coffee shop or something although in alaska you know they're usually a little standoffish at first it's like you know i I'm not so sure about this. All these people come up all the time. They're a little gun shy because of all the reality TV. So you start talking to them if it's a stranger, and they'll be like, I don't know about this. I've been burned in the past. And then five or 10 minutes later, it's like, well, okay, why don't you come to dinner? And then you can sleep in my spare bedroom for three nights, you know, because that's just the kind of place that Alaska well, is. So
1: the reality TV is producers like coming up to find more well, extreme all, Alaska. Yeah, it's stories. all the
2: extreme Alaska stuff. And I, I've gotten like five calls from TV producers since this book came out. And it's like, hey, do you happen to know anyone? One who you know lives off the grid, but you know is also like a hot bathing suit model, you know. So that it's quite understandable that Alaskans are sick of this stuff. Um, but if I am meeting someone like on the boats in particular, like from you know Ketchikan to Wrangell, and then again from Juneau to Sitka, I have two separate conversations with fishermen, and they're talking about what it's like to be a fisherman and the weird things that happen. And what I do in that situation is I'll just like turn the camera on in my head. It's like, you know, the old Tom Wolf thing in, with Radical Chic where he's like, you know, I just memorize everything. Then I run off to the bathroom and scribble it down. That's what I do there as well, mm. you know, and I'll change their name or just use their first name or sometimes I'll call them later. I'll say, you know, at the end, I'll say, you know, do you have an email? I'm a writer and I I might have, uh, you know, a question or two for you. And I'll say, well, actually, I'd like to write about what we talked about and give them the general gist of it. And usually they say yes. Sometimes they don't. But if not, then I'll change the name Mm -hmm. because it just it gives that genuine flavor without embarrassing anybody. And
1: do you in that kind of situation, are you... Like, what do they think you are? You're just
2: like a, a guy on the boat. A lot of times people just come up and start talking to you, yeah. you know, on these boats. Because it, it's very open. There's no cell service. Nobody's checking their email. You know, it's literally people playing checkers and, you know, reading Ross McDonald books and stuff like that. Stuff that they would have been doing 30 years ago. Um, so the idea that you can just sit down at someone's table and start talking, which in you know New York City would be like, you know, call the cops... On these boats in Alaska, it's like this is the most normal thing in the world. If you have an open seat, someone's going to come sit down and start talking to you, and they might be the strangest person you've ever met in your life. And in my case, that's great. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but, uh, you know, usually, unless unless I get the sense that it's someone who would not mind if I started taking notes, then I'll hold off. and be Because people you tend to freak out. If you pull out a pencil and a notebook... Yeah. You know, they start acting like you're Mike Wallace trying to, you know, stalk them on 60 Minutes or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that seemed very um, tricky to me, actually, about this and and the Machu Picchu book, were you're going in, and part of the conceit of the book is not that you're naive about it. I mean, you've prepared, like, you know what's going on there, but you're going as an explicitly as an outsider with a particular lens into it. Yeah. And in both cases, there's sort of cultural aspects. In Alaska, there's the way that. Alaskan natives were treated, are still treated right. today. Right. How that interacted with the Harriman expedition, yeah. and I'm curious how you how you think about that kind of going in, particularly when you're you're doing the historical aspect where it's a different time and like you have this group of people who did a lot of good research who yeah. also kind of did awful things. Yeah. N- not them themselves, but they sort of like look the other way. It right. seemed like for the most part. Right. And like, how do you how do you think about that going in, not sort of
2: perpetuating that I guess is well I think first of all you know somebody wrote a, a book about writing recently I can't remember what was. maybe it was Colin McCann or someone like that and um, the first rule is don't be a dick <laughs> so that, you know bluntly stated but it's true don't be a jerk don't go in with you know presuppositions don't go in trying to tell people things just go in with your ears open and hear what they have to say and the second thing is you, you mentioned you know Looking at stories that have already been told, you say, what hasn't been told here? And when I started looking at the history of Alaska and, and the late 19th century, there was no historical record of the people of Alaska. And it's the same problem I encountered with Peru when the Spaniards came in and uh, conquered the Incas. They destroyed their history. Mm-hmm. So all this history that had been passed down orally, these people for generations have been told that's bad. You need to embrace the official, you know, American narrative, and bits and pieces of that have held on. And now there's a big push to, like, you know, save native languages that are dying and things like that. And to me, that's very interesting. You know, the missing part of the story is often the most interesting part of the story, and. Did you already have a kind of view of,
1: you know, those old travel writers? It seemed like you've been an editor and you're also like a big reader of of that stuff, like of the John Muir's and the Burroughs and like all those, that group. Did it it
2: change your view
1: of them, like looking at them up close?
2: It did a little bit, you know. I mean, the funny thing about John Muir is he's, you know, he's like this druid, uh, you know, this priest of nature. But at the same time, he was a fruit baron. You know, he's making a fortune on fruit trees <laughs> a few hours outside of San Francisco, you know. His version
1: of how to be a travel writer was uh, be a fruit baron. And then you can do all the travel well, writing he's you kinda, want.
2: You know, I'm, I'm living off my, <laughs> you know, my wife giving spays and neuters to cats and dogs, and John Muir was living off his wife's fruit fortune. You know, he started out as, you know, a vagabond, and he, you know, he was definitely a very serious traveler, but that part of the story tends to get left out.
1: When they, there's a whole... uh there's a whole small narrative of the Harriman the guy paying for the expedition yeah who just wants to shoot a bear like that
2: well that was the whole genesis of the expedition he met some guy at the field museum in chicago and he's like what's the biggest bear i can shoot and he's like a kodiak bear on kodiak island in alaska and harriman's like okay well let's you know let's get a luxury steamship going let's call john muir you know let's see who else we can get on this thing and and you know maybe we'll uh make some amazing scientific discoveries let's go we got two months
1: it sort of reminded me in a funny way of like modern media companies being owned by billionaires yeah it's it's like they'll let you do all the things that you want to do but he might want to shoot a bear
2: so just keep that in mind he's gonna show up once in a while and be like (laughs) we're actually here to shoot bears right right it was (laughs) it's kind of like when i worked for men's journal magazine back in the day it was like okay you guys can make this great magazine but keep your desk clean or jan's gonna freak out (laughs) (laughs) you know that that's that might be the most important thing You know, let's win a National Magazine Award, but for God's sake, don't have a cluttered desk, okay? (laughs) Well, let's talk
1: about back in the day because um, one little tidbit that filtered through in uh, Tip of the Iceberg was that your dad was a CBS cameraman who covered the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as I understand it, you
2: were not... Uh, Want to be journalist from from no. early on? No, my dad worked for the, the what was the Walter Cronkite show, and then the Dan Rather show, and then CBS got sold, and he started working for local TV news. This is in this is in, sh- in, Chicago. in, Chicago. in Chicago. I grew up in, outside Chicago, and he hated TV. Always hated TV. Never watched TV. Said so don't go into TV. He never had you watch things, and he said like, oh, I shot. I well, the, shot that. the thing. No, he wasn't really that proud of being in TV. But what his job did was. I could go down to WBBM and watch them shoot the news, and there's Bill Curtis. You know, then I could meet Bill Curtis afterwards and shake his hand. You know, Chicago is one of those towns where you know if you're the local weatherman or you know you're a sports star or a former sports star, those people get you know, are really really put on a pedestal. It's less so now, but it's still more so than than in New York or LA. Um, so to see these people like you know blowing their nose into a handkerchief or something like that, sort of demystified the you know the famous person enigma and that was useful when i basically fell into journalism fell into magazine writing what did you want to be no i was in graduate school at loyola in chicago studying like literary criticism deconstruction post structuralism that sort of thing not doing that well and if there's one skill life skill i have one gift It's not like storytelling or anything like that. It's being able to sense when things are about to take a turn for the worse. And being in grad school in Chicago at like a second rate Ph.D. program in 1991, I was like, I don't like where this job market is going. You know, I am I'm not going to be able to get a job at a place like Loyola. So I took a year off. I was tending bar in the loop in Chicago and near the financial district. And a friend of mine came in one night and was like, hey, I met the managing editor of Outside Magazine. And I was like, what's Outside Magazine? She's like, it's this really cool, outdoorsy magazine. They have internships. I think you should go. Go talk to the managing editor. And I was like, "Eh, I don't know. We'll see. And she kept at it. She's like, no, this is perfect for you. It's like, this is what you should be doing with your life. So I finally, I called the guy up. His name's Dan Ferrara. He's still a good friend of mine here in New York. He works at Bloomberg. And um, he's like, okay, yeah, cool. We'll give you an internship. And what i didn't realize at the time it was based in chicago that was based in chicago rate. at the time they'd moved to santa fe a couple years later um was that i had joined one of america's greatest magazines like at the moment when it was about to hit its greatest period in the mm-hmm. mid-1990s you know outside magazine won the national magazine award general excellence three times in a row against tina brown's new yorker so i didn't realize that i you know i'd been thrown into this like incredibly fertile environment to learn about magazine making and magazine writing my very first week there you know i sort of exaggerated my computer skills and they're like you know we need you to call this writer in seattle and get the modem to work the handshaking protocol on the mac so you can get his manuscript and his name's john krakauer he wrote this story about a kid who wandered off into the wild into in alaska and it took me like five hours to get this manuscript over the modem because it's you know 1200 baud at that time or whatever and, uh, you know, had no idea that this was going to end up the book and the movie, Into the Wild. Yeah. And, you know, they're working with other people like that and meeting Mark Bryant, who is the editor-in-chief, who has had a huge influence in my life because he hired me again in New York City to get a magazine, and then he bought my first book in 2003. Oh, right. So my whole career is just basically, you know, happenstance, being in the right place at the right time, really, really good fortune. Because that outside magazine job... I was able to use that to get a job at GQ, fact-checking, in 1993 during the Art Cooper era. Which and then you moved a, to New York. Another one of the great magazine eras of all time, yeah. So basically within a year, I went from tending bar and taking a leave of absence from literary theory to living in New York City and, you know, running into, you know, Tom Juneau at the coffee machine at GQ, you know. Yeah, you didn't aspire to be an no, no, editor. No. No, I, I became an editor after a couple years of fact checking. Um, David Granger, who was later the editor of Esquire, sort of took a shine to me and said, you have a nice writing style and you're clever, but you don't know how to report. So he sent me over to his friends at Adweek Magazine, Media Week Magazine, where they like forced me to report 4,000 words on the magazine industry every day, which I absolutely hated, but it was great training. Did that for a year, then came back to GQ as a staff writer. And then a year later, Granger said, you know, writers don't make any money. You should be an editor. So why don't you become an editor? And then he left and Art Cooper basically, out of spite, because he thought David might try to hire me, promoted me to senior editor. Like, you know, years before I should have been. It was a battlefield promotion. I was 29 years old and I didn't know anything. That's,
1: the, I mean, now that seems like such a distant era. It could be like... The 1920s. The idea that two magazines were sort of just fighting over yeah. people and, and saying like, no, we'll pay more to keep this person is, uh, I mean, I guess people still move jobs and still
2: get paid more to stay or whatever, but that just seems so foreign it to It was me, such you know. an amazing time because not only were magazines doing well and thick, you know, we, the 1998, I think it was, issue of Men of the Year issue, which is the november issue of GQ, had 504 pages, I remember. You know, I mean, it's like a, the Yellow Pages, and so there's so much money to play with that you can do what you want. You can do great work, you can do crap work. Um, but what happened to me at GQ was I got I was there for two or three years, and I realized I don't actually know how to edit. You know, I've been promoted far beyond my station because I was like a good rewrite man. It was that like pre-Maxim and then early Maxim era where if you could write funny about big topics there was a premium for you, you know, suddenly time magazine discovered Joel Stein and for the back page and stuff like that. Um, but then I went, that's when I went back and work with Mark Bryan again at men's journal. He was trying to remake men's journal. And that's when my like editing education began because I was watching a documentary about Stanley Kubrick the other day. His incredible attention to detail. And all the people who who work for him are like, God, I love Stanley so much personally. But when you're working on a movie, you just want to strangle him because he can't give it up. And that's kind of what Mark was like. It was like, you know, okay, I I know we've got six drafts. This is good. It was good, publishable on the fourth draft. I know the writer's on a plane to China. I know it's shipping tomorrow, but I really need a new lead. So... (laughs) Send it out one more time. And, you know, it's the lesson in quality, the lesson in how important the structure of a story is, you know, the idea that, you know, you have to get a multiplicity of voices in there. Um that's when I really started to put that together and I think if I hadn't worked for Mark and then after that I worked for Susan Casey who had worked with Mark who's been Mm -hmm, on the show here mm -hmm. um, with Sports Illustrated Women and I worked with John Rasmus who is like the granddaddy of that whole school of writing and he also is extremely particular you know that's like graduate school for editors so within three years I was like okay now I really know how to edit magazine stories and were you doing much writing in that era i wrote all the way through there Mm -hmm. yeah i mean in 2003 i was we had just bought a house and my wife wasn't working so i was you know deputy editor at national geographic adventure magazine i was writing stories for places like runner's world and allure and i signed up to write this book i I think i found an allure uh, kate hudson profile that was the that was the profile (laughs) that broke me really yeah, that was the one. She comes down like a half hour late at the Ritz-Carlton on Central Park South with her then husband, the guy from the Black Crows, Chris Robinson. And they're like, hey, man, you want to get some Chinese food? I'm like, yeah, sure, fine. You know, I'm looking at my watch. I'm like, we've only got two hours. 30 minutes are gone. We're going to spend 10 minutes walking over there. And like a half hour into the interview, the three of us basically were like, when is this going to end? We can't, I can't. You like, want, allowed? No, but you could, you could just was, feel it. It was like, they don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. And I knew, sitting at that table on 8th Avenue in New York City, I was like, this is the last celebrity story I am ever going to do. I'm not working with celebrities anymore. I'm not dealing with sports people anymore. You know, unless it's someone fascinating, I'm not doing this anymore. And I think that was probably the best decision I've ever made.
1: <laughs> so you turned away from that, and then was it, did you have another of these moments where... You decided to go write books because you looked at the magazine industry and said,
2: I can see this is about to turn bad. I would like to say I did, but I did not. I knew that the chances were that one of them was not going to do well. Mm-hmm. And I thought the magazine industry was probably headed for trouble, you know, 2008, 2009 with the big economic downturn. So the fact that it had four, five, six more years where it did really well. I remember running into an old friend of mine who was a publisher at Conde Nast in 2013. And he's like, we just had the biggest year we've ever had in terms of ad pages and we know the bottom could fall out at any minute. We're still waiting for the bottom to fall out and it did, but only like two years later. You should have saved some of that money. Should have, man. Should have. But what did occur to me when I was, I, you know, I'm sitting at my desk, Rasmus at National Geographic Adventure, an example of what a, a lovely person he is. Um, I have a disabled son who I had started to bring into the city every day for school for mm-hmm. half days. So Rasmus called me up. He's like, hey, why don't you just come in and work a half day at National Geographic Adventure, you can help coach the young kids, you can keep an eye on things and rewrite stories and stuff. So I was like, okay, that's a good deal. So I was sitting in National Geographic Adventure. The first book about called Mr. America about the health guru had just come out, was dying sales-wise. And I'm like, I need an idea that is gonna sell. And I'm walking up and down the hallways of you know, America's leading outdoor travel magazine or whatever. And it's like, there are eight pictures of Machu Picchu in here. People are obsessed with Machu Picchu. Is there a story here? And then I went back and I looked it up and I realized, oh my God, we're like a year and a half, two years out from the 100th anniversary of Machu Picchu. If I hustle here, I can get a book pegged to the anniversary. And that's what I did. That reverse engineering, I've never heard someone
1: explicitly, people probably do it, but don't talk about it, but explicitly uh, described in terms of
2: how you figure out how to find a book that will sell i mean that book did sell it it sold very well it's actually it's something i learned from an architect an architect said to me once first get the commission (laughs) you know (laughs) and that's a great rule it's like okay first sell the book get the advance have the baked in market you know it doesn't have to be travel it could be you know you had Paige williams on recently and and that's a book about dinosaurs people love dinosaurs that's a built-in market you know and then create your masterpiece because the wonderful thing about the book industry is once they trust you, they'll just, you know, you know this, they'll let you run and do whatever you want and then, you know, turn it in when you're done and it could be completely different from what you talked about. Yeah, they're not paying that much attention no, on the, on no, the way. No, no, no. With the Machu Picchu book, everybody loves it. They're like, oh, that guy, John, the Australian, your guide, he's amazing, such a great character. He wasn't in the book proposal. I When I sold that book, I had never even heard of John. Yeah. You know, so you get a lot of leeway in the book world that you don't in the magazine business.
1: So when you, how, how, um first, how big a leap was it? I mean, you mentioned that your wife's a vet and, but when you said, okay, I am going to, I'm yeah. going to take this leap and leave yeah. magazine editing yeah. and go write a book. Like how big a, did you feel like, oh, I can always come back or like, here I go. And if this doesn't work, I don't know what's after.
2: You know, it really felt like I was sailing off to the new world because I'd done that first book. I knew how hard it was. Everybody who writes a, a, a book and I, I haven't done any fiction, but nonfiction, they People tend to think if they're magazine writers, newspaper reporters, like, I can do this in between my other job. Mm. And they don't realize how big a task it is. They, the biggest thing you have to figure about writing a nonfiction book is you got to be able to keep the whole thing in your head. And it's much more complicated than a 4,000 word story. If you've got a 100,000 word story, you've got 10 times as many characters, you got a lot of moving parts, you're thinking about the structure, you need to think about where this thing is going. So, having done that once and turned it in like two years late, I knew what what it was going to take to do that second book and to do it right and remember I also had a gun to my head because it was the 100th anniversary in July of 2011 so it was like a perfect situation you know it was also you know what happened with the first book was an executive editor bought it handed it off to a senior editor who left because I was so late and then handed it off to an assistant editor who was then, you know, promoted to an associate editor and in the book business the higher up your editor is the more yank they're going to have in the sales meeting and the marketing meeting so I said to my agent I was like let's sell this next book to someone who you know has got some power in the room and we went to Brian Tart at Dutton and I was like well Brian is the president publisher and editor in chief and he offered the most money and I was like bingo to <laughs> We have a deal, you know. The book was due on June fifteenth, and I turned in June fifteenth at eleven a.m. And I think they were a little surprised. <laughs> yeah, that's not.
1: Yeah, that's not the common story. So when you're when you're looking for, I mean, you mentioned like with tip of the iceberg, you sort of you were in Seattle and you saw this yeah this ranger, and that that's what caused you to find out what the Harriman expedition. But that's it's so uh, happenstance. Like, how do you approach? finding these ideas like what what is your process by which you say okay
2: now i need another book you know i kind of stole something out of a michael lewis book where he in the introduction to one book from the last he's like you know when i was working on my last book i was you know driving around with this guy in texas i think it was and you know he mentioned that you know what's the worst thing that could happen to the economy and he said oh the thing i worry about is x lo and behold six months later You know, X happened. So I went and talked to Meredith Whitney or something like that. And I realized after I did the Machu Picchu book, I was like, wait, I can just take ideas that are like bits and pieces from stuff left over. So it was like, you know, I did this story about the world's greatest philosophers for real simple. Another assignment I probably never should have taken. But. You know, it introduced me to the like, basics of the philosophy of Plato, and it's like, wait, Plato is the guy who invented the Atlantis story? Everything we know about Atlantis that's not like you know made-up woo-woo stuff came out of Plato? That's kind of weird. And then, wait a minute, when I was at National Geographic Adventure, remember how there was that day that Google Maps came out, and all of a sudden people started emailing in saying, I found Atlantis on Google Maps? You know, maybe there's, you know, maybe people are using this Plato story and things like Google Maps now that you know the internet is this big, you know, search community to look for Atlantis. Maybe some of these people have actually, you know, like good ideas about where Atlantis is. And
1: Atlantis shows up in the Machu Picchu book too. Yeah, exactly. And that's I think who claims to have exactly discovered that's,
2: it. That's what you know. I saw the newspaper clipping from 1911. I was like, Atlantis, front pages of the New York Times. Atlantis found in Africa. <laughs> You know, so you take these little things, maybe to are left over from the last book and you just sort of play them forward to the next one because I am so bad with ideas. I'm terrible with ideas. The best magazine writing gig I ever had was at Men's Journal because Jason Fine, the editor, and Mark Healy, the executive editor, would just call up and they'd be like, hey, here's a pre-approved idea. Do you want to go? <laughs> be like, where have you been all my life? <laughs> You know, it's hard enough with book ideas, but, you know, people who are out there hustling all the time and sending in a new idea every week, I don't know how they do it. That part of my brain just never developed.
1: But book ideas are also a big swing. I mean, have you been, how far down the road have you been with something either pre-proposal or a proposal
2: that that didn't happen? Luckily, I have, like, the world's most blunt agent, Daniel Greenberg. Mm. I've sent at least a half a dozen ideas to him over the years, and he's like, this is not going to sell. Or this this is a great idea, but you would not do a very good job with this. Um, When we did did our first book together, he's like, do you want to see the uh, editor's responses from the houses? And I'm a reporter, so I'm like, yeah, sure, of course. More information is good information. So he just starts sending these, you know, forwarding them blindly, and it's like, this is a dumb idea, and he's not a very good writer, and I don't think he'd do a very good job with this book. And just like, you know, rejection after rejection. I was like, Daniel, okay, that's enough. I get the idea. (laughs) I, I get the idea. So, yeah, I come up with bad ideas for books all the time. And, are you on one right now? I have like three ideas I'm juggling, and he likes two of them, to give the vague outline. One is one involves elephants in Africa. Mm. One involves Mount Kailash in Nepal, which is like the high holy mountain of Tibetan Buddhism. And one, which he, uh, Daniel does not know about, is I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of what is lost when we move from a world where the hand and the brain are connected through handwriting through drawing and things like that mm-hmm. to a more ephemeral typing world you have kids so you know you know they're moving away from the cursive and things like that well there's a whole body of research on what is lost when you no longer have that tactile you know uh, element of, of learning so i i find that whole thing fascinating um and there's a couple other things i'm kicking around and then you must, I mean, you said you get a million people
1: asking you, like, how do I do your job? How yeah, do I yeah. be a travel writer or whatever yeah. you want to call it? I think in one one of your books, like, it's called Travel Memoir. It's described in... Uh, I don't know. It's, the, you know, it's, it's a weird niche. Front matter. Or it's like the, history, travel,
2: you know, I don't even know what to call it.
1: But you still have this thing where, like, people are paying you to go to cool places and yeah. be that camera yeah. lens. And yeah, 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 Just, like, take it all in. What if someone wanted to get into this?
2: You know, for... Probably the first twenty years of my career, I told everybody, "I was like, you know what you got to do, you got to get a fact-checking job." I used, I used to say that too. Yeah. that's what I. That's yeah. how I started. Because you, well. you know, you're you start fact-checking. You know, Jean Marie Laskus, who's been on this show a couple times. You know, I would fact-check stories from people like her, from you know the best writers in america at gq and you get this huge file you've got all their reporting all of their research you see how it's put together you might even have like earlier drafts of the story so it's you know it's like diagramming sentences in grade school you get to see exactly how these stories are put together i don't know what that job is now
1: There's still there i mean there are fact-checking jobs i think there are a lot fewer than there used to be but big magazines still do them i mean the thing i've found is when i try to tell someone uh, I mean it's funny people talk about millennials in, in a derisive way but like yeah. they're like 10 hustles ahead of where I was at that age like oh, people God. are so much more they know the landscape and they know how to hustle right um, well everybody's like well
2: uh, what I really want is for you to introduce me to your agent yeah right. it's like well if you call me up and show me that you can write and that you have a book idea that's going to sell and remember you know that's rule number one of the book business it's a business right agents want proposals that they can sell for money because that's how they live you know so don't come to me with your college thesis that you want to turn into a 300-page book cuz it's fascinating to you you know what i always say is imagine yourself on you know fresh air or the today show or you know some real general interest show can you entertain A million people for an hour with the stuff that's in your book because if you can't you're not going to be able to sell it and you're not gonna be able to get it to an agent and you're certainly not going to have a big publishing house take it yeah it's a business you know you have to have stuff that sells you know there's a reason why magazines have always put celebrities on the cover because celebrities sell You know, every editor in chief in America is like, God, I wish I didn't have to put celebrities on the cover of the magazine, you know, but that's what sells. So, you know, you if you do want to get started as a nonfiction book writer, the first thing you need is an idea that a lot of people are going to buy. Yeah. You know, and sometimes you can do that because you write for the New Yorker and they'll let you write about whatever you want or the New York Times Magazine or something like that. Um, You know, sometimes you've just sold a a best-selling book and now you want to write about the people looking for Atlantis, (laughs) which if you hadn't, you know, no one would return your phone call. Uh, But they have to have some sort of idea that, you know, at the end of the day, their profit and loss statement is going to have black on it rather than red. Well, here's hoping your next one is uh, indeed that. Thank
1: you. Well, thank you for coming on the show. My great pleasure. It's been fun. Thanks. That is all for this week's long form podcast. I'm your co host, Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Mark Adams for coming into the studio. His book, out in paperback now, is called Tip of the Iceberg. It's very funny. It's very fun to read. Go check it out. Thanks to my co hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, to our intern, Louisa Garbowitz, and to our sponsors, Mailchimp and Pit Writers. We will see you next week.